We have a real treat this morning. Uh, Gary Morris, also known as uh, Rabbi Wrongway. Hey, don't you that oh, I don't have a mic on. I'm sorry, man. That's all right. Um, for those of you who don't know Gary and Kathy Morris, uh, most of you do because this is their church home. This is their church family. Uh, but they currently live in Atlanta where Gary uh, serves in ministry to the Jewish community there. Uh, but my wife and I had the privilege of spending time with Gary and Kathy in Israel this summer. It will forever be a highlight in my life. Israel was amazing, but the highlight was being with Gary and Kathy and spending time together, uh, enjoying each other, enjoying uh, a special place, uh, laughing when we get lost, and just having a great time. Uh, for those of you who've been around Gary enough, you know that uh, it doesn't take you very long to catch the infection that he has, and it is this. <laughs> he loves God's word, and the more time you spend with him, the more you learn to love it just because of what he shares and what he has to communicate um, because of that love of God's word. So we're privileged to have him here with us um, as a friend, as a part of our family, and so we really look forward to what you have to share with us this morning, Gary. Come on up. Thank you, Todd. Uh, I thought what happened in Israel stayed in Israel. <laughs> Apparently, that's not the case. And uh, we'll rectify this someday. As to everything else he said, it was uh, the joy of Kathy and I also to be with Todd and Terry and those from Melanie. Uh, it was a special, special trip. And to be with special people in a special place, uh, I don't know how it gets much better than that. So, but today what we want to look at is uh, the sculpture, the molding, uh, the presentation of a king. And... We're going to look at the life of King David. How many in here know where the cave, I know Todd knows, but uh, have heard of or know where the cave of Adullam is? You ever heard of that in the scriptures? Some of you have. Uh, it's not in Israel, is it? It's in Moab. The cave of Adullam is a real place, and King David actually ended up there uh, as he started to be restored and molded and sculpted by God himself, the greatest king human king Israel ever had was in this cave at a very low time in his life. And I kind of picked this message because David's life, even though he was a Renaissance man, he was a warrior, he was a poet, he was a musician, he was skilled in many different areas. <clears throat> but David is a microcosm of basically life and what we as believers will go through. And you know, when you read the first chapter in James and it says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when various trials come upon you. I'm sure many of you have studied that passage, have it committed to memory, but God indeed has a blueprint for each one of our lives. And each one of our blueprints is different. And it depends on what we need, when we need it, to conform us to the image of his son. And so today, today I'd just like to look at how he conformed a young Jewish boy uh, and molded him into the greatest king Israel ever had. And it was a process. And right when David thought that uh, he was at the height and he's ready to go and assume the throne, 
that's literally when all hell broke loose, and he had another thing coming, and that's what we're going to look at today. King David has more written about him than any other person, except for, uh, except for Jesus. Um, he's mentioned and talked about in First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second uh, Chronicles. Uh, he's the most often, I believe, Old Testament person mentioned in the New Testament. King David has the highest compliment ever paid to any human being. Uh, he said that he has a man, one of the highest. I mean, Moses had a few and some of the prophets, but one of the highest, who was a man after God's own heart, a man who did some very bad things at the end of his life, was said to be a man after God's own heart, and that's because David's heart was soft and teachable and pliable. And God took his heart and all the gifts that he gave him and rebuilt David into somebody that he could put on a throne and leave Israel in a very great time. He's got the highest honor uh, bestowed of it, possibly any human being in history. He, was, he would be the progenitor of the Messiah himself, in the line of the Messiah himself. Uh, ben Elohim, the son of God, would be Ben David, also the son of David. So he's from David's line. And uh, God says that basically tells us in the text, in so many words, mark this man. Because his life is in direct contrast to the king that was before him, King Saul. King Saul greatly relied on, and David did in the beginning, but King Saul relied on his own strength, his own zeal, his own ability, and he ended up with his body pinned to a wall according, uh, in, in honor to the power of Dagon, a, a pagan god. David would not end up like this. And in Genesis 49.10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, uh, and to, uh, until Shiloh comes, that's the Messiah, and to him will be the obedience of the peoples. So all legitimate kings would come from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the reason that Israel picked Saul was because he was tall, handsome, spoke well. Uh, a lot of things that uh, appease to people, but that's not God, that wasn't God's man. David was God's man. So uh, as we look at this life, we start off with that he's a shepherd boy. And unlike Saul, his life is going to be a testimony to the grace of God. Uh, Saul's life wasn't. But David's will be. And one of the things that I hope we see as we just go through a few verses is that David gave, uh, God gave David some tremendous gifts and abilities and strengths. But he's given the body of Christ tremendous gifts and abilities and strengths. And uh, with all of our talents and gifts that everybody has who's a believer, they are multiplied and replicated a thousand times over worldwide through the body of Christ. So if, if I drop off this, the scene today, or someone else does, someone else just steps right in with the same gifts and everything like that. But each one of your uh, lives is a unique reflection of light. It has a uniqueness in God's plan. It has its own blueprint. And nobody, in another sense, can replace any one of us in the sense that we have a uniqueness. We're created in the image and likeness of God, and every person is different. And so with David's unique abilities and strengths, uh, his musical skills, his poetic skills, he was very great, but God wanted somebody to sit on the throne of Israel that was broken and who was teachable. 
and who understood the mercy and grace of God, and David in his younger years, maybe he didn't so much. So, uh, let's see here. The first thing we see about David is in 1 Samuel 13, 14. It says, But your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Saul did some things that weren't entirely kosher, and God was going to replace him with, obviously, King David. And remember the prophet Samuel in 16, let's see. Just going to be going through some verses here, because... Sixteen thirteen. you remember the story, Samuel goes to Jesse's sons. Jesse had several sons, and he brought his sons out in front of Samuel, and uh, he says, hey, have you got anybody else? And he said, uh, what do you mean? What's wrong with my boys here? And he said, well, no, this is not the one. And then the famous verse, God does not look at the outward appearance as man looks at. God looks at the heart. That's not the total verse. But God had in mind King David, who was out in the field, so... Jesse said, yeah, well, I have a son out in the fields, and he's brought before them. And in 1613, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So we say, well, yeah, all believers get the Spirit. Well, that's a new covenant thing, isn't it? In the ancient world, in the Old Testament times, the Spirit came on someone from ministry, and then God, if he so desired, to take that spirit away. Remember after David said, he says, Father, take not thy spirit from me, right? But uh, so God anoints David. He's obviously an ordained man. God had chosen him already. Now he's an anointed man. Uh, he's a musician, a warrior. Uh, David was like a SEAL Team 6 kind of guy. In fact, down here where he, he's... Uh, He's going to be sent to give some cheese and bring some stuff to his uh, brothers. They're supposed to be fighting a war, but there's no war being fought. It took place, or was supposed to be take, uh, where David killed Goliath was in the Valley of Elah. And there's a hill on each side. We've been there. We didn't go this trip. We'll be there next trip. But uh, they're absolutely certain of that place. And when we went on a former trip, we actually got to pick up stones from the same creek where David picked up stones. My son Raleigh built a sling, and uh, the guide told us, everybody get back behind Raleigh and Gershon because they're dangerous. I don't know if you've ever used an Old Testament sling before, but they're, it takes some practice. <laughs> but anyway, David goes up there, and there's no battle going on, and he puts on Saul's armor. Saul wants him to you know, go to war with some protection, and he, he says, uh, let's see here. Let our Lord now command, this is verse 16, your servants who are before you, let them seek a man who is a skillful player in a harp. Well, that's the wrong passage, let's see. Sorry, Sorry y'all, thought I had this. Well, I've lost... I've lost the verse. But you all remember when uh, David put Saul's armor on, he then takes it off and he says, your servant has killed a bear and a lion when he was uh, guarding his father's sheep. 
And if you go back and read the verses, it says, when a lion or a bear had a lamb in its mouth, I went up and I grabbed it and I struck it and killed it. So I don't know how that happens because the Spirit of the Lord came upon David when he was anointed by Samuel. Uh, obviously, God was in that. But David was a fearless warrior. And so he goes against Goliath, and he kills Goliath. And many of you remembered Goliath's dimensions. Uh, his armor weighed approximately, I did some figuring a while back, 125 pounds. The end of his spear was close to the weight of a shot put. Uh, and yet, David knows that he's history. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that charges or challenges the armies of the living God? And I don't know if you've thought about that. Uh, um, at first, I used to think, well, David's just angry that, uh, you know, this is not his land and this is Israel's land and there's a covenant made with our father Abraham and it was an unconditional unilateral covenant. But what he says is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And what he's basically, I think he's thinking more by this time in theological terms. David knows that the covenant is made with Israel. And the sign of the covenant is circumcision. And this is a Philistine. And he has no right to this land. And so David says, who is this person who's not in the covenant challenging the armies of the living God? And he goes and he kills them. He, just, he picks up several stones. I think it was, what, five? And some say it's because Goliath had four brothers. But this is a huge warrior who had been a warrior from, for a long time. And what is David wearing? Nothing, right? He goes to him with a sling and with one sovereignly orchestrated, thro orchestrated throw. He, sh he throws a uh, stone, hits him right in the forehead, and the Bible says it's sunk into his forehead. And then he goes up, and just to make sure, he cuts off his head. Well, <clears throat> There's a number of things, I think, that gave David confidence. I think some of it was like a, a false security, but I think some of it was theologically oriented. This is in chapter 17, is Goliath's challenge. In chapter 16 is where David was anointed by Samuel. David was anointed king, right? Was David king? No, he wasn't. David wouldn't be king for a long time. So here's Goliath. And David's going to kill or go up into battle against Goliath, but he's not king yet. So either God doesn't know what he's doing, which is obviously not true, or David doesn't believe God, which is obviously not true, or David knows that he's immortal that day. I personally think it was the latter. I think David had spent so many years and so much time with the Lord his God in the fields protecting his father's sheep that David knew God very, very well. And um, I think that he knew that he couldn't die. So he goes up against Goliath, and now he's a warrior. And he goes from the friend of sheep to the friend of a prince. Jonathan becomes his best friend. He goes from no dates at all to having the king's daughter as his wife. And... Saul set him above the men of war, and he goes, so he goes from the shepherd of sheep to a five-star general in one orchestrated sovereign throw. He just elevates himself. I mean, God elevates him uh, to the height of Israel. And, and let's see, verse... I've got to find my place here, y'all. I can't do this. Champion came out... 
Okay. So uh, in chapter 18, um, he's married, and it says in chapter 18, verse 7, the women sang as they played and, and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. So Saul becomes very angry. So you can imagine this scene. He's nowhere. He's nobody. Nobody's ever heard of him. Samuel goes and anoints him. And then he goes to see his brothers in this supposed battle. There's no battle going on. Goliath's been coming out day after day after day, challenging the armies of the living God. Nobody's doing a thing about it. David goes and kills this guy in front of the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines, and then they chase him. And all of a sudden, he's elevated to basically a, a warrior in, in Israel. He's the American sniper of Israel, right? So uh, he's on, you know, Fox News at 6. The kids are buying Davidic sandals and making Davidic slings. They're all walking around eating cheese. And, uh, and the, the women in Israel are singing folk songs about him. So life is very, becomes very, very good. And then in 1810, now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God, but everyone's happy but Saul, right? Because Saul's jealous or angry or he's threatened, he's afraid, came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now, when it says Saul threw a spear at him, Saul wasn't just old, decrepit man at this time who couldn't fight. Saul was a warrior. He was a lot of things that maybe God, you know, didn't want, but Saul was a warrior. And David escaped him, and now the chase is on. Verse 12 says, Saul was, uh, this is chapter 18, Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now, we don't know what that's like, because once we become a believer, we're the Lord's forever. Uh, what is it, Ephesians 4.30 says he's given us the Spirit as a down payment, right? Seal of our redemption. So we don't know what Saul was going through, but that has to be a very, very scary thing. The Spirit left Saul and was with David. So uh, therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him when the, when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. Verse 19, now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. So some things transpire. Uh, all of a sudden, David's not Saul's best friend anymore. Saul's threatened. And so David has to start running. And you would say, well, uh, um, Life is very good for David at a certain point, wasn't it? Uh, I can be king now. And God said, yes, you will be king, but I'm going to put a different man on the throne than you are right now. And so David starts running for his life. Verse 19, Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. Wait a minute. He just made him commander of armies. He had just married his daughter. He has been the best friend the best friend of Saul's son, Jonathan, right? Now, King Saul is telling his men to put David to death. I don't know how long all this took place, but it probably wasn't very long. He's at the height 
on a mountaintop experience, so to speak, ready to assume the kingship. He's been anointed king. He's ordained by God. Everything's going well. And God says, now the fun begins. Now you're going to start seeing what I, the, the kind of person I want you to become to be king. So he separates him from his king. In the ancient world, that was not a good thing to be separated from your king. You had a, usually a close relationship. You respected the king. You feared the king. And Saul was an anointed man too. God allowed him to be king. So it's not like David could go kill him. We know that from the story. In verse 11, then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save yourself tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair over it, and there's a bunch of things to take place. But basically, David has to leave his wife. So th what we're going to start to see here is there's a downward spi spiral, so to speak, that takes place from David's perspective. God's blueprint from David didn't end with the death of Goliath and the marriage of Michael and the friendship of Saul and the commander of armies. It really just, it didn't end there, it just began. That was the fun part. And that's what happens in a lot of our lives, isn't it? Things are going well, going well, going well, and we just think, gosh, this is nice. I'm in a comfortable place. And then things start happening, and pain comes into our life. And life becomes hard, and it can be in 24 hours. And we, so God is going to break David down. Verse 18, it says, Now David fled and escaped and came to, uh, this is chapter 19, verse 18, came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. And he said, and he and Samuel went and stayed in Naot. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naot and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, basically we're not going to finish reading this, but basically David had to run again. So now he's separated from his king. He's separated from job. He's got no job. He's separated from his wife. You see what God is doing? He's separating him from every cornerstone of emotional peace that was in David's life. Next, uh, he goes to uh, his enemies. Let's see. Verse 20. 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants. You see how far down the line Jonathan is looking? Jonathan is David's friend, his best friend, and he's saying, No matter what happens to us, our children will be friends. Not only are we friends, but our, our descendants, our children will be friends. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. Now he doesn't have his friend anymore. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 1, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has commissioned me with the matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I am commissioned you. Is that true? That's not true. What has David done? David is now so insecure and so afraid, he's lying. 
Now David is resorting to the kind of warrior spirit in survival mode that he was before. So he's gone to the high priest, Ahimelech, at Nob, not the high priest, but the priest, and he's lied to him. So now he's separated from the prophet Samuel. He's separated from his king, from his wife, from his job. Uh, And now he's going to be separated from the priest. Look at verse uh, 9 of chapter 21. David rose, verse 10, David rose and fled uh, that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. You know where Gath is? Where is it? Near Gaza, yeah, Philistines. So who were the Philistines? That was their enemies. So now David is in front of the king of their enemies, right? But the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? So they had heard that David had been anointed. They obviously heard about Goliath, what he did to him, (laughs) about 30 seconds. Uh, Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul is slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? David took these words to heart. So in other words, David's being ratted on, kind of like Todd ratted on me in uh, Jerusalem. (laughs) David's being ratted on by the servants of Achish, right? So he disguised his sanity before them. Now remember who this is. How long before this was it that ballads were being sung about him? And he was a hero in in Israel. Not that long. So he disguised his sanity before him and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let saliva run down his beard. Humbling, isn't it? This is the next king of Israel. This is the king that's going to unite the two kingdoms. This is the progenitor of the Messiah with saliva going down his beard, feigning madness. This is the one whom God said, this was a man after my own heart. This is the guy. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man behaving as a, ma- you see the man behaving as a madman? Why did you bring him to me? Actually says, why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? In other words, don't I have enough idiots around here and you bring me another one? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And with When his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And look at the people who were with him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to David. Praise the Lord. So now the future king of Israel is separated from his king, his best friend, his wife, his job, and he's gone to another country. And uh, from a distance, uh, Moab is is obviously Transjordan. But folks, this is not not the Meadowlands. This is not the country club. This is wilderness. This is desolate stuff. And you're not just there by yourself. You're with all the Hanyaks that didn't have any other place to go. So this is David's new army, isn't it? 
well, God's not going to leave him there. Verse, uh, verse 5 says, the prophet Gad comes down there. Well, let's start with 3. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Encouraging, isn't it? With everything going on, his faith is intact. Then he left them when stay with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Haret. So here's the point. You're in the cave of Adullam, and it's one of the more barren places on earth. Uh, you're lonely. You're missing your, well, I don't know how much he's missing Saul, but you're missing your wife. You're missing your friend. You have no spiritual counsel because you're separated from the, the, the priesthood. Um, you've pretended to be crazy, and now you're in a cave, one of the most barren places on earth, with all these guys that are discontent and thieves and robbers and everything else. Tozier says, anyone God uses mightily, he will hurt deeply. And I'm sure there's many in this room who have been hurt. We've been maybe hurt by family or friends. Uh, we've been hurt recently, the loss of a loved one. You can't go through this life and not be in a euphemistic sense of the word in the cave of Adullam. It's just not possible. At one point or another, everybody sitting here today is going to be in the cave of Adullam. And so what do we do about it? Who do we look to? Well, we look to the Lord. It's the Lord who will lift us out of the cave. And sometimes he's the only one we're going to have. And so if we're sitting here today as believers and our walk is not strong, well, it would behoove us to get it strong. And how do we do that? We just spend time with him. You've been taught, I'm sure, over and over and over again in the various classes and from the pulpit of this church that our relationship with the Lord you know, sometimes I think there's one lesson in life that is more important than everything else. And it's a really, it's a very simple lesson. As believers, do we have the ability to trust our Savior in every part of life? Because we're going to be in the cave. It's what do we do when we get there? It's a very simple lesson. Do we have the ability to trust our Savior? called faith in every part of life. So uh, David, of course, gets out of there, and David becomes the greatest king Israel ever had. But the point is, what did God have to do? He allowed Israel to see that he was going to be Israel's next king. But then God allowed him to be chased by Saul for years, and uh, he fled. David had more than one opportunity to take Saul's life, and he didn't do it because Saul was also the Lord's anointed. And there was one point when they were in a cave in En Gedi, which we didn't get to see, but we will next time, um, where we know that David hid from Saul. It's a huge cave. Uh, en Gedi is uh, in southern Israel, and there's a, a water uh, spring there. It's called Spring of the Goats in the Scriptures. And uh, you hike up this trail and you can go and it's a it's a massive cave 
and it's actually two openings with a waterfall coming down and at the bottom there's a pool and they know that's where David hid for a number of reasons. One, there isn't that much water in southern Israel. Uh, so David, as he's fleeing, would have had to have been seeking water. Saul, as king, would have knew where David would be fleeing to and he would have been chasing him and that's where Saul was when he went in to use the restroom and David took a piece of his robe. Then Saul leaves and David holds it up. Hey, could have taken your life, but I didn't. Now, why didn't he take his life? That's the question. Fact is, he didn't do it, but the question is, why didn't he do it? Because David had learned something along the way, hadn't he? David had learned from the Lord to be patient. And as you keep reading through 1 Samuel, you'll come to a place where there's a man named Nabal who had a, a wonderful wife. Nabal wasn't so wonderful. And he basically did some things against David and his men, and David went up with a group of men, and they were, he was going to take his life. Uh, but his wife came out, and David, again, retreated into what God had been teaching him, and he let him live. So what God did was David's life was, he was a warrior, he was a renaissance man, he was a five-star general. He was a Dwight Eisenhower, a Colin Powell. He was all these things, but God needed to mold his king. He needed to shape him into the kind of man who would have a soft heart, a teachable heart, a merciful heart, so that when he's king, he could deal out justice from God's paradigm, God's perspective, and not just a warrior military man that he was. Um, I think about in, in closing the life of, of Peter. And basically what God did was, God restored David. You say, well, he didn't really need to be restored. Oh, he did. You know, even as king, David made some, he sinned, didn't he? But even with his sin of adultery and murder, God restored David. And God does that with us also. God is a God of restoration. And you think about the life of Peter. And Peter just had an incredible spirit about him. And uh, you know, when Jesus told everybody, hey, you know, there's going to come a time when you're going to scatter. And that was actually a prophecy right out of Zechariah. The fact that the disciples scattered, was it was, it was prophetic. God said that they, the, the uh, shepherd will be slain and the sheep will be scattered. And what did Peter say? He said, well, Lord, they, they may scatter, but you're looking at the rock. I won't leave your side. Well, what happened? He denied him, didn't he? He denied him while he was still alive. And what do you think that did to Peter? How do you think he felt? I imagine that Peter, during, between Friday and Sunday, you know, after the, after the six uh, kangaroo court trials, three, three religious and three civil, and then Jesus is crucified, between Friday and Sunday, how do you think Peter felt before the resurrection? But after Jesus is raised, he goes and he restores him. He goes and seeks Peter out. And Peter probably thought, you know, this movement will go on. The Lord's risen from the dead. And he, I'm sure he believed that. He was a believer. In fact, we were at the place when he first made his statement of faith. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the risen God. And, and Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal to, that to you, but my Father who is, in, who is in heaven. So Peter was a believer, but he had to have been in the cave of Adullam, right? A long time. And what does Jesus do? He goes... And he finds him, and he restores him. And he brings him to a place where, yes, Peter, you will be used. 
And Peter was assured that the gospel, Jesus knew that Peter was assured that the gospel would change planet Earth. And it has. And we're sitting here today talking about Peter and talking about Jesus because the gospel went out 2,000 years ago and it's not done. So I just wanted today for us to look at how God molds the life of a king. We talked about in the first service about how this king has the answer to death. He's the only one that has the answer to death. And we owe him everything. So... Father, I just uh, pray that you would use David's life and all that you brought him through uh, in each one of our lives, in mine and every person's here. I pray, Lord, that we would see that you have a blueprint for our lives. And sometimes uh, the molding that you bring us through is painful. But compared to eternity, this life is very short. And we're not living for now. We're living for, uh, for eternity and there's going to come a time when uh, we will not be living by faith. We live by faith now. Now is the time when we can glorify you and honor you. In the future, we will see as we are seen and know as we are we're known. Uh, but now, we can exhibit trust. And I pray, Father, that our lives would be lives where people look at us as they did the apostles and early believers people who face death and people who face persecution. And there may come a time, Father, in our own country when uh, it's not like it is today. It's not like today like it was even 30 years ago. And some of the most persecuted people on earth right now are Christians. So I pray that you would take us and use us and mold us and whatever it costs. Do to us what you need to do to make us a people who reflect your glory in our lives and who glorify you. Use us, Lord, as your servants. Let us be a channel through which you bring truth to a lost, crushed, dying world. Use us, Lord, for your glory. Let Make our lives count. Let us make a reflection in eternity. Just little old piddling us, just your sons and your daughters, who you have paid the price of redemption as our kinsman redeemer. Lord, take us and mold us so that our lives can count. In Jesus' name, amen.